Hello, fellow leaders. This is Rich Leg again. I will be narrating this episode of my podcast. In this episode, we will be discussing another portion, hopefully the second and final portion, of the experiences I have which contribute to my expertise of 30 plus years in the software industry. I bring this industry experience and expertise to all of my customers and all of the companies that I've worked for, many of which are in the Fortune 100, General Motors, Motorola, EDS, Humanetics, I'm trying to think of some of the others. How could I forget? Siemens. I'm a software leader and a software project manager. When I first started back in 1984, which is when I graduated high school, there really wasn't much in the way of computers, particularly not PCs like we know them today. You know, they operated on a big floppy disk and didn't have much of any uh, permanent CMOS memory. They all booted up off a disk, and when you powered it off, everything was lost. It had to be on the disk, one to boot up with, and another disk to save your data. And I went to uh, college. There really weren't many colleges or universities that even had uh, computer programs. Most had business degrees, and you used a little Excel to add up numbers for you. I knew that that wasn't anything I was interested in. I mean, a little bit. I knew I could compromise and take that, but. I really wasn't interested in the addition of the numbers or being an accountant. Um, I was more interested in solving problems with technology, with computer software specifically. So I found a program. I was accepted to three different uh, major universities. Uh, Kansas State University had a program at the time. I was from Nebraska. They had no computer program at the time. If you weren't a football player, a doctor, or a farmer, there really wasn't much sense going to University of Nebraska. I also got accepted to Southern Illinois University, um, which also had a computer software program at the time. And then I also was accepted at Iowa State University, and they had an excellent, outstanding engineering program and the computer science uh, department was, you know, part of a bachelor's of science. It wasn't part of the engineering program, but I knew I could switch to computer engineering uh, if, you know, that became interesting to me. So, big shout out, woohoo, to Iowa State University and the Cyclones. Computer science like I said, was barely even recognized as any kind of major anywhere. I was constantly asked by people, why don't you go into business and, you know, learn how to do spreadsheets. They thought that was the future. Um, most universities didn't have 
any MIS programs that came much later. Um, we weren't programming on PCs. That wasn't a thing. PCs were primarily used by um, some artists, some graphic designers, architects, CAD, and of course uh, you could do your uh, English research papers, your thesis and stuff like that on PCs. Other than that, you had to use a dial-up 300 baud modem to connect to the mainframes and the VAX machines on campus. So it was really much faster to walk to campus and use the labs that were there. They were not PCs. Those were in the library for non-computer science work. And the labs in the computer science area were uh, timeshare computers hooked up to a VAX or a Unix machine. It was TSO, they called it, timesharing. Uh, I knew that I wanted to work with computers and software and use them to help people, both in business uh, and, you know, for a company and independently as it was becoming more and more uh, affordable for people to have PCs uh, in their house. The number one seller has always been IBM computers, but Apple was trying to make a run in the market. They were giving away their computers to high schools and colleges, hoping for a great amount of adoption, and they were pretty successful at that. And then about the time that Stephen Jobs was first kicked out of Apple Computer, he went and started uh, Next Computers, and I followed him and almost bought a Next Computer when I uh, graduated and was uh, situated in Detroit, Michigan. Um, business majors, like I said, they were really learning to use spreadsheets. They were very fundamental. They were just really adding the numbers. Uh, they did zero, I mean, really zero, uh, programming. They weren't even really taught how to use formulas in One Two Three Symphony. Uh, they were more focused on taking data that had the formulas in there and generating reports for analysis. Um, the computer engineering, there was no software engineering, it was uh, computer engineering. That was mostly centered around hardware and was like the, you know, step cousin to the much more supreme intelligence or those so they thought electrical engineers i was really not interested in the physical hardware you couldn't you know change a lot of hardware you couldn't you know you're always limited by what was available um you know i could solder and i knew how the logic on the boards work we were required to take computer engineering classes so i knew how to build you know, AND gates and OR gates and logic and like, you know, a soda machine, how to sense when the coin was there, what size it was, you know, deliver the uh, items that were in the vending machine, how to issue change, right? I knew how to program all those boards. And it was all just theory. We had no hands-on uh, experience. That was pretty much reserved uh, for a few, very few of the engineers got to do any labs with actual hardware, with actual soldering, with any kind of robotics or mechanical. It was much cheaper uh, for them to do things in a simulator 
on a computer uh, that was donated by various uh, companies, but that wasn't made available to anybody but the computer engineers. Computer science, it really wasn't specifically about coding in one single language. We, we learned multiple languages. Uh, we learned in different environments, right? We learned about operating systems. Databases were just starting. So we learned about tape storage. We learned about how data was saved on a floppy, you know, how it had sectors, how it was formatted, how data was kept track of through the index, how latency times were uh, important when building or selecting hardware for your customers. Um, and many of the companies, when, you know, they called, a lot of the companies from Des Moines recruited from the universities, they were really looking for just uh, COBOL programmers to help them on their mainframes uh, to keep track of batch processing, you know, using job control language, JCL, uh, in the insurance business. And the insurance business was, you know, very old, very mature. It still is today. They make a ton of money there. But, you know, the programmers and the analysts, those guys don't really see any of that. I'm sure they've outsourced almost all of that now offshore. Um, <clears throat> the one language that we were taught, we used the most, was used as the weed-out class for, like, uh, computer software 101, 102, or 201, or 202, I can't remember what its number was, was a C programming language. It ran on a VAX machine from Digital Equipment Corporation, and then, like I said, Unix machines that ran primarily on Hewlett-Packard, uh, time-sharing machines. At that time, PCs were primarily only used, like I said, for uh, English papers or CAD mechanical engineers. I have practiced uh, my trade in many different locations. After graduating Iowa State with a degree in computer science, minors in English, uh, I figured that would be excellent for communications and technical writing, and another minor in sociology. <clears throat> I really enjoyed social psychology, things like groupthink when you're working in teams, uh, you know, cause and effect of things, how humans reacted to certain stimulus. Uh, also, uh, you know, many examples like the Bay of Pigs, you know, a lot of research done on uh, people with little to no power in society and how they survived, how they could benefit from technology uh, some philosophy courses on whether or not technology was more beneficial or less beneficial. Concept like Luddites and, you know, some logic in my philosophies about like, that's where I first learned about tautologies and logic uh, discussions, how to, you know, convert philosophy discussions into math. So that was very interesting. I also had a slight interest in meteorology. I took a 300-level meteorology class uh, for additional physical science credit. Um, so I really have always had kind of like a Renaissance man philosophy. I like a lot of things. I know where my limits are. I never took chemistry. 
it was very hard for my brain to uh, understand chemistry because it was below the naked eye and then there wasn't a lot of microscopes available and you know the concept of what is a mole I get the math part of it I just don't get a lot of the concepts of it being a made-up number so that you can measure atoms and you know chemicals in a distinct unit so I have enough chemistry to have intelligent conversations. I liked physics. I took a lot of physics. Uh, like I said, I love the math. I don't like the, you know, advanced calculus portions. I haven't had to use them. And if I needed to, I could learn them, you know, on the Internet and other things with relative ease. But back to my story, back to, you know, the story about me. After I graduated... I lived in Detroit, Michigan. After that, I volunteered to take a position with my company, Electronic Data Systems. And then uh, once I was done there, it was kind of the middle of the Rust Belt. Wasn't a lot of opportunities there. I took uh, a transfer. I found a position within the company in St. Louis, Missouri, using my C and Unix skills. They were working on a re-architecture of a Fortran-based program, which I was a master at the time in, and also leveraging my C skills, my Unix skills. They were developing an open system that ran on Unix machines, and then the user machines were PCs and Windows. Um, and I really enjoyed that, you know, uh, I was primarily assigned to the database team, not as a database administrator, but as a programmer. I learned all about SQL, uh, mastered that. We were using uh, Informix at the time, was an independent uh, software vendor for databases. We could make them however we want. It wasn't uh, Oracle, it was much cheaper, much faster, and was the, you know, was the cream of the crop at the time. But I got mastered all my, you know, SQL. I learned about joins. I learned about retrieving simple data. I learned about retrieving very complex outer joins. I learned about storing the data in uh, class objects. Um, and it was, like I said, three-tiered architecture, which I had never experienced before. We had one data later, which was the, interacted with the database for the user later, which did all the presentation and invoking uh, the database through the data layer. And then we had a logic layer, which did all the number crunching because we had PhD algorithms that were being cranked out for scheduling. And then we had... Uh, a infrastructure layer that did all the brokerage of all the APIs and the registration of the APIs. So one layer didn't need to know or call directly any of the other layers and that they could be replaced. The database layer could be replaced with whatever customer was using for their database. The user layer could be replaced with whatever they were using for a user layer if it wasn't Windows, if it happened to be Unix that was managing all those at the time, they could use that. And the logic layer could pretty much run any custom 
algorithms that anybody created on any platform. It was all created in-house. It was an R&D uh, organization that originally belonged to McDonnell Douglas, and the software was called Force Management System, and it was replacing, like I said, a Fortran-based uh, legacy system. I did a lot of the interfaces between the new system and the Fortran-based system. I learned about Big Indian, Little Indian, you know, where when one platform calls the other, the bit order can be totally opposite. Uh, a lot of very low-level uh, knowledge I learned and APIs and things that were leading edge at the time. I'm currently open uh, to working. You know, I've already made my mark in my career, but I like the uh, stimulation. I like working with people. You know, I'm uh, engineering-minded, but I also have all the humanities, have excellent uh, customer skills, know how to de-escalate and manage teams from a couple of people in, you know, close proximity, co-located to much larger teams working in different time zones and different continents. At Motorola, you know, we outsourced all the development to uh, an India-based team by another uh, big company called Tata. And so we worked off with the offshore guys and had some guys come onshore. We worked with both of those. They were the preferred uh, vendor for Motorola during the cost-cutting years. From the time I had my first programming experience, I just wanted to use the power of computers, specifically software, you know, to help improve all kinds of human activities. I helped my mom and my stepdad with their trucking business do their uh, ledgers, do their uh, taxes, because you have to collect all your fuel and mileage reports to do your taxes. So I learned a lot about trucking. I helped some of her friends that were in that business because my stepdad was an over-the-road long-haul uh, California to Midwest trucker. Um, so I learned that on the you know my non-working side. I started that in high school and college, and I also like helping people in you know corporate America. Like I said, I worked in several Fortune 100 companies, and I just gained a ton of valuable experience that. I always added to my toolbox of skills and expertise. Uh, to me, the world of computer software is infinite. It's infinitely vast, and it's never-ending, if for no reason other than the hardware changes. They become faster, smarter, cheaper, you know, new inventions. You know, when we used to use tape drive machines on mainframes, now, you know, the amount of information you could store and that you paid for just the storage, now you can put on a thumb drive, you know, terabytes of information that you pay less than $100 for. It's really my calling in life to help others uh, in many areas. I've coached various uh, sports teams for my kids, and even before when I was in college, I, I volunteered. Uh, with different sports, basketball, soccer are usually my preferences. I also referee those sports, so I'm very good at viewing things from different points of view and making a ruling, even under you know pressure of coaches yelling in your face. You know, I umpired uh, when I was in college, fast pitch softball, so I know how to handle 
people that are being rude, when to remove them from everybody's, you know, inflamed perspective. Uh, I find that it helps me be a, a very empathetic and understanding of management as well as the individual teams. I talk the language and can program shoulder to shoulder with the individual team members. I can translate and speak non-programmer to customers, suppliers, executives, very comfortable and have been highly trained in presentations, reporting, you know, that feeds into my technical side, technical writing, my um, psychology and sociology side in terms of how to provide the right information to the right, right people at the right time, you know, whether that be peers, new programmers, expert programmers, staying out of their way, but giving them guidance specific to projects and goals. You know, students, I teach programming and other things to my clients as well as to uh, students. Uh, I, like I said, I've helped my mother. I help elderly people figure out their mobile phones. I've had a history of doing that, helping elderly people, you know, with software or advice on what computers to buy, um, all those things, family and non-family as well. Um, like I said, I've enjoyed coaching sports. I enjoy coaching people on my team. I always work cross-functionally, so I coach other people. I get the right people involved, whether that be their managers or people on their team to identify coaching and training needs. I'm an expert at documenting, you know, inline code. I was always complimented on my inline documentation, documenting my structures, my functions, my classes, so that people who maintain and support after me know exactly what the software does. I document flow diagrams that business analysts and DBAs and customers and managers can use to understand what all the magic is, you know, what the pieces are. I never have written monolithic code. It's always, you know, broken into easily maintainable and swappable uh, functions, you know, or classes. Like I said, I can roll up my sleeves and dig potholes if I need to, or post holes, I mean, for uh, helping people. I, I always love getting my hands uh, dirty. I walk around to see what's going on and help out where I can when I'm not at maximum, you know, bandwidth. I could have, you know, been a lot of different things. I liked the software. I could have been a therapist. I could have been, you know, in sports as coaches. Um, I could have been a writer. I still play around with a lot of writing. I I'm not yet published, uh, but I do publish my stuff on the internet on a daily basis on social media and for my own pleasure. Um, you know, I, I can do individual tasks like communicating to shareholders, uh, stakeholders, executive management, technical people. I can give them advice on how to save costs, how to expand profits with adding services that are natural extensions of our business. I can pretty much proudly say I've done a lot more than the average eight to five worker. I've never been an eight to five guy. I stay until there's a sensible breaking point. I'm usually the last one to leave. I can honestly say I'm not the first person to get there. I find that staying later is much more beneficial for people, especially when deadlines roll around and people need help at five or six o'clock. I'm 
usually still in the office with no problems. Uh, my greatest asset uh, of the many types that I have is being valuable to the teams. I've already made most of my marks in corporate America, so I'm really looking more at this point to give back. I'm not quite so interested in climbing the ladder. I'm already up there. Uh, I found it's very crowded up there. There's still a lot of baby boomers in the market that don't want to give up their power and uh, their abilities, even though I know I can do more. I usually don't push my way into things. I wait till someone asks. Um, I'm not trying to figure out who I am at this point in my life. I already know who I am. I know what my limits are. You know, I don't try to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with database administrators. I know how to hold them accountable when they're not doing, you know, industry standard uh, services. When they come up with delays, I can offer my advice on other database advice and experiences that I've learned. I know people at Oracle. I know people that are experts at Caterpillar on databases. Um, you know, I just have a vast network of experts that I can go to when, you know, we get in a jam. Technically, uh, I have plenty of people I can go to in my experience. I'm connected to them on LinkedIn. I can call them up in a minute and get a reply within a few hours most times. I always go find acceptable and high quality answers. In my world, if I say, I don't know, it's because I don't know. And I always follow it up with, let me go find out, right? To not know something <clears throat> and to be confident enough to admit that is a mature skill I find very little. But I try to be that example to say, I'd rather not bullshit you, even if I'm trying to sell you something. I will go get an answer for you or I'll tell you what the industry tells me. And, you know, we may not be able to do it. And if you can find somebody cheaper... Uh, that's great. If you can find somebody that's more knowledgeable than me, uh, that's great too. I would, you know, use different providers or different companies. Uh, if I were you, that's my recommendation, right? I don't get insulted if you don't trust me or, you know, if you think I'm blowing hot air up your butt, uh, that's very valid. And if I think I'm receiving that, I will definitely call that out. Um, I'd rather not you know, take progress and go down a road purely on blind optimism. I find that when I call that out in people, they get offended. I try to present them the facts of why an intelligent person would think that way based on their, you know, what they're telling me, you know, their lack of meeting deadlines or the complications that they weren't able to predict. I call that optimism if they're expert they should be able to know what some of the trade-offs are, the pros and cons. And when they act like there's no cons, uh, I usually know they're operating on blind optimism. You know, if we're going down a path that's, you know, really undefined, I'd rather, you know, tell everybody that that's the case, that it's unexplored territory, which frequently is with software. We're not building bridges. We're trying to take concepts or ideas in our brains communicate them accurately to other people so that the bridge will meet up when it comes together or the rope swing that you asked for is built so that it can be used that it's on the 
correct side of the tree that you wanted it on. Um, you know, you've seen the cartoons that are out there that, that what the customer wanted, what the designer thought of, right? What the builders thought it was be, what the testers tested for, what was built, right? What was delivered or installed and how different it is and how it suffers the various degrees of telephone game and, you know, spoken word versus written word, how easy and how many millions of, you know, points of noise and points of potential fa failure that exist in the pipeline when a lot of people are involved, right? I find that the more people on the team, the more points of failure that occur, the more difficult communication can be. And, you know, I have no problem building it myself. That's usually not the most efficient way, right? But I also know that when you try to add more people and the expectations of many executives is let's try to have a baby with nine experienced mothers in one month. So I try to be a practical person and not pump up the volume on things that are not cookie cutter. Software is very rarely ever cookie cutter. Projects by definition are not mass production processes right? They're unique. They have a unique starting, a unique end, a unique scope, right? And you have to use the right processes, the right methods uh, for each individual customer. They're rarely ever can I take a solution out of one customer and just dump it right into another customer. Most customers don't want that. And, you know, it's not a long-term solution. But you know, if my customers would, you know, like to get something done quickly and don't want to take a few minutes to agree on a plan and they're just going to charge forward, they want to be a Leroy Jenkins, I let them, right? I can take the money and make a killing off of all the fixes and change requests that will come with that approach. As far as the world of communication goes, I love to close, have a close, operate with the closed loop process, always closing the loop, getting back to people, even if it's bad news. Bad news, I, I'm told, only gets worse with time. I don't spin. I'm transparent. I know my shortcomings. I am a human. I do have shortcomings. I don't go sharing those with people. Those are my own you know, areas for growth. I listen to people when they say, you should grow in this area. And to me, a closed loop is immeasurably important. I pride myself on that practice. I never wake, walk away when people are trying to explain things. I try my best to de-escalate and not get triggered. Um, I've been successful and have always been uh, a very high wage earner for the, you know, job titles and grades that I've been given by companies. After I graduated from Iowa State, I said I went to different locations. Um, I told you about my minors and what I was trying to achieve with those, even though I was constantly told that's a very weird combination. Most programmers were left brain analytical people. I also had an equally functional right brain that wanted to be a doctor with good bedside manner, 
Um, out of college, I got a job from Electronic Data Systems, which is called EDS. We joked around, said it stands for Everybody Dresses the Same, because we all wore shirt and tie, coat and tie, actually. Uh, was created by, founded and run by none other than the legendary famous Ross Perot. They made an egalitarian company. Everybody ate in the same conference, in the same cafeteria, and there was no executive parking spots or parking garages. Uh, and when Ross Perot was bought out by General Motors, um, almost every General Motor manager that was in an IT role was sent over to work at EDS and you can imagine how unhappy they were to lose their company cars because there were no company cars at EDS they lost their reserve parking spots because there were no reserve parking spots the early bird got the worm at EDS and um, General Motors became so unhappy with his walking around style as an executive talking to assembly line workers uh, learning about the business and how he could provide value uh, to General Motors. All they really wanted him for was to eliminate waste in the form of insurance claims because somebody could work at Pontiac, but they could insure, uh, submit their insurance claims to Buick, to Cadillac, and to Chevy. And many times they were paid out by multiple divisions within their company with no ability to track when that stuff was occurring so eds did that they also wanted to take all of the drafting that was done on paper on boards and to automate that general motors successfully did that saved general motors a ton of money made them leading edge so they could supply electronic files to their suppliers as well as down to the manufacturing folks so that they could run the CNC machines, the stamping machines, uh, the mills, uh, the drill presses, all from the CAD data uh, that was created by the research and development. And each division had their own group of draftsmen and designers. So it was very impressive. I worked with the uh, draftspeople that were using an in-house uh, program that was originally started by General Motors. It was called CGS. They also had some places that were using CATIA and other industry best case examples and that product still exists today. I forget what it's called um, but it was bought out by McDonnell Douglas and you know obviously a lot of those people became General Motors, I mean EDS and so I've always stayed kind of monitoring how that product, which originally was deployed in data centers on mainframes, uh, evolved with the times and became, PCs became so popular uh, that people could do all of that on uh, personal computers. Um, General Motors bought out Ross Perot, Ross Perot left and started contracts with the U.S. Postal Service for free because he had a non-compete clause in his buyout. I always kept an eye on him and was very surprised, pleasantly surprised, when he ran for president. Um, like I said, I bought it. I 
joined EDS after he had got bought out, but before he ran for president. Um, my first assignment, how I got hired at EDS, was in a program that they called electronic, I mean, not electronic, engineering systems development. We called it ESD. They had had an industry best practice for systems engineering development, SED program. That was for airlines, uh, insurance, all of their, you know, money-making businesses. When they were bought by General Motors, they decided to create an engineering program. And both of those programs consisted of three, pay, three phases for people that are fresh out of college. You know, to be successful at EDS, one had to pass all three of those phases. The first uh, pre-phase was professional training in uh, Texas, Plano, Texas, on how to answer the phone properly, how to give public presentations, how to operate basically as an EDS uh, proud employee and why their policies were the way they were. There was a little bit of introductory concepts like programming numbering systems, logic, you know, very little things. You had to pass all those uh, to be able to go on to your account assignment in what they called phase one. Phase one was all customer service related, zero to no technical or programming activities. We would learn how to do customer service, uh, to be the best in the industry at customer service. Being assigned to General Motors, you were also introduced to large corporate quality programs run by Denning and Crosby. We learned the customer support side supporting General Motors customers as well as to help them interact with their suppliers and their customers. You know, we learned uh, the financial side of the business, how to perform monthly uh, profit and loss statements and to be accountable for the uh, deviations or anything that was more than 5% away from the estimated profit and loss we had to account for what caused those deviations and what was going to be done to correct those deviations. <coughs> we had various levels of technical training that we went to. I was able to go to the technical training on the software, the CGS software that my customers used and knew that one of my potential assignments would be to work in the EDS corporate uh, CGS teams that were running on PL1 and JCL. That wasn't what I was interested in, but I knew that could be one of my assignments. Uh, after a year of doing that, for me it was a little bit more than a year based on the backlog of demand. We started phase two. We called that programming boot camp. We went away from our normal, comfortable life as a desk jockey and customer service person, we relocated to an apartment owned by the company uh, near one of the EDS training centers for us. It was in, uh, I can't remember the suburb anymore, of Detroit. And we learned two different languages in eight weeks with one program due each week. In the ESD program, uh, the first half of the class we learned PL1 running on uh, mainframes, which I had no background in. Yeah, I'm that old. And we also learned the language that I was 
more than proficient at and was considered the best thing since sliced bread because it could run in any platform and that was C. I'd already known that at Iowa State, was very proficient at it and that part of the class I aced. I passed all my PL1 assignments, I even had one assignment execute on the first time the 100% answer and it made the administrators and the teachers think I had cheated and had gotten from some other previous student or somehow from one of the instructors an illegal copy. They said they had never seen a program run 100% match on the first try. But back in that day we were told we had to write pseudocode for our designs which I showed them. We had to enter in all of the syntax in PL1 and uh, that was easy to do. Uh, the JCL code, I never did understand how that worked. You know, they almost gave us the answers for that. Uh, but when I they ran my program and they had monitored us the whole time, they saw I was working on a regular basis every night, late into the hours. Uh, and they understood that I didn't have access to anybody that could have given me the answers. That wasn't who I was. And uh, they understood that I just kind of had a gift. I was, you know, like a savant sometimes at being able to do all the analysis and programming. And uh, most times programs don't do that. I was surprised myself when it did it. And most of the times the programs need to be edited and rerun and things like that. So they knew I wasn't, you know, cheating because it was a, a one-off thing. Back in those days, the closest thing to a PC anybody had uh, for programming in corporate America was a mid-range or a mini-computer like Hewlett Packard or, or a digital equipment company, Vax. So in phase two, the results of your programming efforts uh, either failed or they matched 100% the predetermined output of that each assignment. And after you failed three assignments, you were terminated. And we knew that when we signed up for the job that that was what we were going to be put through. I felt that was exciting and very organized. We signed a contract when we hired on that if we didn't make it all the way through uh, all three phases, not just boot camp, but all three phases, that we would be responsible for reimbursing the company for the money they invested in our training and so on and so forth. So to say the least, there was quite a bit of pressure. Uh, it never bothered me. I was confident. I knew that I could do it. Uh, and that was all by design. They wanted to create pressure that software industry has on it and pressure by customers with deadlines. There were a lot of late nights in phase two, a lot of asking questions, trying to uh, solidify and elicit the requirements that weren't written down on, on purpose. They wanted us to be good analysts. And um, they wanted to see how good we were, right, under pressure. And we did everything from soup to nuts. You know, we had to do documentation. We had to understand the requirements. We had to submit designs, data flow diagrams. 
so that customers could do it. They mocked up customer meetings where we could ask for clarifying requirements. We could show them our deliverables. You know, again, everything. One man band, right? None of us worked together in teams. It was all individual effort. Um, and they figured we would work best in that, that we, you know, would be less problems if a team worked on things and, you know, finding out who caused issues was and still is to this day very hard and troubling to do from a company perspective. Like I said, the requirements that were written were less than precise, so we had to be good at that to get them all out to produce the 100% answer. And we needed to write up pseudocode before we started programming because time on the computers was limited. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like today where you each had your own computer and there, you know, we had to timeshare and we had to pay for that uh, time. It was not a free service like it is today. Uh, they were limited, they were expensive, and um, you had to be respectful of that. You couldn't just sit there and run your program over and over again at zero cost. Even though they didn't charge us as developers, uh, the data center was its own independent cost center, and it did charge training and development and our accounts, and we learned all about that in phase one. So effective pseudocode was good for being efficient with the resources, and it was also, if you did a good job, you could turn that into your documentation for maintenance and support and leverage it even further for your training documentation that you could turn over to users and customers. So it all translated into correctly running software. Um, nowadays, with all the options uh, and unlimited costs for running your software and testing it, uh, that's kind of all gone by the wayside. Um, but, you know, back in the day, we learned those principles and we still can leverage them uh, to be a well-respected developer, you know, trainer, tester, business analyst, right? All those things. Uh, was what we learned and that I'm an expert at. Um, you know, nowadays we use a lot of interpreters to turn around the code quickly and cheaply. We get instant feedback when our syntax is wrong or when the function's not working well. We have a lot of stored procedures, classes and APIs that we have to treat as black boxes. We don't know how they work. We have to understand the documentation. Uh, what parameters we pass to that, what memory we have to have for that. You know, we have to know if it's coming back in a list, a, a, a list of class objects, right? What the class objects look like and what, what the data structures are in there. We have to navigate a lot of very complicated stuff, which makes developers highly specialized nowadays. You can't get a trainer uh, to do programming. And you shouldn't really get a programmer uh, to try to do your training because they speak in programming language and the users speak in user language. So pseudocode and a lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside, but it's highly valuable. You can leverage it and you can really cut down on your delivery time if you make the investment, if you're disciplined. Um, it's really the foundation of software is to have excellent designs and architecture and I'm skilled at all of those uh, even the testing I'm certified in I forget the name of the expert that came into Motorola and did the 
testing uh, training for us. I have to pull up my certificate. Um, and really those, you know, certifications and documentation companies don't do because it takes longer, costs money, right? But if you're good and you can do multiple disciplines, you're actually saving the company money by reducing uh, the resources and the labor associated with those resources. That's really what I bring to most companies. Um, and most companies have highly disciplined divisions of labor. The documentation that I produce, I hand off to supporting organizations, to training organizations, and if needed, uh, directly to the customer. Um, all of those things these days are divided into tech writers, testing, right? Very few people do all those things soup to nuts. Uh, because it makes things tend to go faster, but the trade-off is those are failure points uh, of communication that frequently occur. And I can talk for days about what happens when requirements change during the life of a project and why the big shift to things like Agile and Scrum, right? Those things have just as many failure points, and a lot of companies are now realizing that, you know, while you have some operating software in a matter of a month, the changing requirements of users is something that has to be planned for. Um, and a lot of times in Scrum, you deliver working software, it's up and spinning, but it doesn't do all the requirements. And if you're not good at eliciting, eliciting requirements from your users or from your stakeholders that are paying for it, you're just going to burn cycles pumping out programs that never ultimately, you know, achieve the desired results and end up costing more uh, because of the burn and the churn in development, which is the most expensive part, and the testing, which usually gets cut in all uh, methodologies when the crunch time is on because of not well-defined requirements, uh, a lot of people are not good at estimating. They try to cookie cutter every project with the same estimates. And of course, customers don't want to pay any more than they have to. So it's a very, very fine line, multidiscipline fine line uh, to deliver on time with the agreed upon scope and within the project budget. Once we graduated from phase two, and we'd be, we were, you know, highly trained, highly disciplined. We were assigned to phase three. That was our first programming type of job. Uh, I was on site with a customer, uh, a supplier, used to be owned by General Motors, but they spun off all their internal suppliers. Uh, and the division I worked at was in Ohio called Packard Electric. They made all the wiring, miles and miles of wiring for each car. They used some union labor. They used some outsourced labor to make their wiring harnesses for Buick, Cadillac, Olds, Chevy, every brand that General Motors made, uh, even the trucks, the buses, which they were starting to get out of the business of that. All of that required wiring harnesses, and the supplier smolted the rubber to coat the wires, made the terminals, made the connectors, made the entire harnesses either for the entire car uh, based on what its options were, 
or they made compartmentalized harnesses, one for the door, one for the engine, one for the instrumentation panel, one for the lighting, one for the trunk, you know, they called it the deck lid, uh, all those things uh, this Packard Electric made, and they were the company that made the Patrick Packard automobile, that was their foundation. And so I was assigned to them. Some people got assigned to internal EDS groups that did software development for different parts of General Motors and a part of a group, but I had good customer skills. And in hindsight, I mistakenly volunteered for this assignment because they said they were in desperate need in this small town called Warren, Ohio. And in hindsight, I should have stayed in Detroit and worked on, you know, Ladder logic and manufacturing logic, uh, I think I would have really enjoyed that and uh, been better served than, you know, being young and naive and taking a volunteer assignment uh, to Ohio, Ohio. The good part was I got a bonus for taking that assignment. I lived in a lower cost uh, location, so I got like an indirect bonus and I was still successful. Uh, even though I had a little regrets about that wasn't really an emergency once I got there. It was supporting Fortran, which is the outdated language. Um, but I excelled at my customer skills. And, you know, all of my customers and all my managers always gave me top reviews. And uh, I enjoyed the small town that we lived in. Uh, had my first son. Uh, there in Warren, Ohio. And when I was done after about three or four years, uh, I got back to the big city in St. Louis and working in modern languages and modern uh, technology with a multi-tiered, three-tiered, four-tiered solution that nobody else was doing at the time. And it was R&D, which I enjoy. Um, Let's see. Like I said, in phase three, some people got assigned to factories like I did. Some of them had leading edge automated manufacturing. Mine was very antiquated and not even part of a General Motors assembly plant or a manufacturing plant. It was a supplier, but I learned a lot about the business, the industry of manufacturing, the in, the man, industry of uh, assembly, uh, Union labor, non-union labor. I had remote customers in Indiana, St. Louis. Uh, and some people got assigned to the computer-aided drafting software. Some of them were assigned to finance departments. It was really a well-designed uh, corporate environment. People got to work in R&D. People got to work in, you know, hardcore development groups. Uh, HQ Some people were assigned to HQ. Some people did remote data centers. We had four or five corporate underground barracks protected military style headquarters at the time. Uh, Every imaginable scenario, even EDS had the contract with IndyCar and one of my uh, friends, he got assigned to that account collecting the data for the IndyCar circuit. He was very lucky. In nearly every assignment after phase three, we were expected to continue to do soup the nuts. Architecture, design, development, the industry had not, you know, 
separated into separate groups. It was in the process of doing that, but it hadn't, hadn't trickled down. We did everything, and we used every bit of the software lifecycle process. It was known and still is as the SDLC. I started to transition into project management there because there was more money. Uh, you had more influence. You were just bigger, important, a bigger contributor because I could manage the technical resources, which, to be honest with you, I never met a manager who was a programmer. They were accountants. They were auditors. They were businessmen. They were not, you know, post hole diggers. I was. And so I could speak both languages and was very valuable to my teams for that. Agile was not a thing. It was mostly waterfall in software development. And we used a little bit of modified V to try to cut down on uh, the changes, the long lead times uh, for software development at the time. We knew inherently that you know, most of the time and effort that needed to be spent making excellent use of our skills as software people was extracting the requirements and documenting them and getting unambiguous uh, requirements so the customer could sign off on <coughs> and that the, we could be, have, be highly confident that the, you know, the coders and the testers, if it wasn't us, could actually do what needed to be built. We all agree, I think, throughout the industry that it's cheapest during requirements, elicitation, and documentation. It's much cheaper to redo that stuff than to redo software that's been developed or to test software that fails the tests. Um, so nobody's ever proved to me that any methodology is cheaper than getting unambiguous, fully elicited requirements from the intended users and stakeholders who will be paying ultimately for your services. I always looked at it as being like a journalist, not trying to just record the requirements, but using the skills of interviewing someone, especially if they don't really know what they want. You know, the industry has gone towards agile to try to elicit those requirements elicit, not illicit, elicit the requirements and get things captured in a, you know, strategic, uh, efficient manner when customers don't know what they want. The days of customers knowing what they wanted, you know, all that software has been written. All the software now needs to solve problems that have never been solved before or have always been determined to be impossible. And to me, that's really the impetus or the, you know, incarnation of agile philosophy in modern day business for current software. Um, but too much time and too much money is spent when the requirements are missed and, you know, people suffer from paralysis analysis. That's not any better. So being able to do it in a time boxed or time bound environment uh, is one approach, but it does not replace highly skilled people who can elicit the requirements that even the customers don't know how to elicit. They can show you, and if you can understand their business and the big picture of what they're trying to do, you have a much better success chance of being successful uh, and have high scores with customer satisfaction. 
Well, I've run into an hour. I never could have imagined I could talk that, you know, long on one podcast. But I have so many more thoughts that I'd like to share with people. I'll put them in the next podcast. It's been a while since I found the time to get one. I currently uh, have a full-time job plus and uh, would like to give back to the industry. I don't have a certain salary that I need to make. I have a goal in mind. I think it's fair based on my skills and my immediate contributions to a company. Uh, Like I said on every podcast, uh, I sign off wishing you success. If you are not experiencing success, then I wish you good luck because being lucky is always better than being good, even though it's temporary, whereas being good is a much better strategy long term. But if you aren't even having good luck, let alone success, well, let's talk about it. Email me. Leave me a comment. Call me, right? I have my phone with me seven days a week, 24 hours a day. My contact information is out there in the universe of the internet. And like I said, I'm a fish in water. I love to give advice. If you're listening to this podcast, I'll guarantee you one free consultation of your choice. And I guarantee you uh, my services, even though they're free to you, the listener. Um, And I would hope that you would like the consulting and would be willing to give me a five-star review for the information that I will share with you or if you've been one of my past customers that you could leave me a voicemail or send me a text of uh, a five-star review that you've experienced with me and I would be more than happy to post that on my website as uh, a review customer feedback as well as on my uh, website on fiverr.com where I offer my customer service and consulting and project management skills. Um, currently, I hope to add some more like helping people with using mobile phones. And again, I'm, I'm not charging uh, fair market value. It's way below that as I build my business. So if you need any of that kind of help and assistance, either in a large-scale corporate environment or, you know, your team or just individually because you want to get better at using, let's say, uh, voice-to-text or how to master your Android and you don't have the time or interest or ability to sit and watch YouTube videos of very, you know, questionable quality that don't cut to the chase, that are always trying to sell something, right? Not trying to sell anything, I like all my listeners. I will give you free services uh, to start. And I would hope that in exchange for that, you could, with a clear conscience, give me a five-star review. Need to get a hold of me. You know how. Email, text, websites, phone calls. I'm always turned on. Sometimes I can't always answer the phone. Leave a message. I guarantee you, I promise you, I will call you back. If you don't leave a message and you don't text me, I'm not going to call you back because I don't know if you're a spammer, a scammer, or, you know, a Chinese intelligent officer. (laughs) One of my friends says he thought that's what LinkedIn was full of. 
was Chinese intelligence officers trying to get information from U.S. people. So I'll, I'll uh, entertain his thought and avoid people who call me who don't leave a message or send a text or send me some stupid link to click on. Uh, I'm just not going to do that. I'm too experienced, right? All right, have a great day. Sorry for rattling. You have a great day. I look forward to uh, speaking with you, getting to know you, and vice versa via my podcast or my post on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I do all the social medias. I've even started a, a Twitter as well. Take care. Have a great day. Bye.